Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And again, if you're visiting with us this morning, we welcome you. We're very thankful to have you here. Uh, my name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here. And it is a common practice of ours to preach through books of the Bible verse by verse. And this morning we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And we will be covering verses 6 through 13. The title of my sermon this morning is The Secret and Hidden Wisdom of God. And for our worshipers in training, your keywords are wisdom, spirit, and revealed. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 13. Let's read together. Yet among the mature... We do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Last week from verses 1 through 5, we looked at how the Apostle Paul said he was coming not proclaiming the wisdom of man, but only proclaiming Christ and Him crucified, which he said was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. You see, the Jews were awaiting a powerful king to come and to overtake the government that was established, to rule the land and to grant them peace. And the Gentiles thought it foolish to die for one's enemies. For if God was powerful, He would use His power to overrule His enemies, to destroy His enemies. And yet they were not considering that God most certainly does overrule His enemies in effectually calling them onto Himself and giving them new hearts and new lives in Christ Jesus. So Paul's aim was for us to base our faith, to base our lives, to base our proclamation and our ministry and our resources on Christ and Him crucified. Not on the pursuit of philosophical wisdom that is derived from the minds of men. But now we see at the beginning of verse 6, he says, Yet we do impart wisdom among the mature. So there is a wisdom that we are commanded to seek, that we should cherish, that we should speak. It is the divine wisdom of God that we should love and seek and desire in our lives as believers. 
Remember, one of the problems in the Corinthian church was the failure of the Corinthians to break free of their connections and their thinking in terms of human philosophy that was being taught with worldly wisdom. Their society was incredibly immoral. It was very humanistic and it was filled with those who made attempts at answering ultimate questions regarding life and death from a worldly standpoint. As well as those who were there and thought themselves wise and sought to portray themselves as wise through elegant, eloquent speech and a sort of crafty rhetoric. So when some of the Corinthians became Christians, they were struggling with separating these ideas of worldly wisdom from the wisdom of God, from the truth that they had known and the truth that they had been taught by the apostles. Furthermore, the the immorality and the human rationalism was dragged into the church that they had received from the world. So in many ways, Paul was writing this letter to help the Corinthians make a break from this worldview and from their lifestyle and from this philosophical worldliness that they were so deeply entrenched in. Many of these Corinthians, they became Christians and they brought with them these ideas that were attached to the teachers that they once followed and were attracted to. So they were seeking to conflate these ideas with the gospel. They were seeking to take these ideas of worldly wisdom and to take the gospel and to mesh them together. And they were attempting to look at the problems and their joys and their conflicts and their sufferings and the relationships in life by mixing this worldly wisdom and understanding with their limited gospel knowledge. And so Paul wrote this entire section calling them to understand what true wisdom is and what the gospel truly is and how to walk in the wisdom of God, not in the wisdom of man. To help you understand in part what Paul is addressing, I want to give you an example from our culture. A large percentage of Americans claim to be Christians. But we all know that that certainly is not the case. But even among those who at least appear to be striving in some way to live consistently with the Scriptures, we can always see man's wisdom being combined with godly wisdom. We see it in how probably most of us have at least one self-help book on the shelf at home. It might be something that you bought at the Christian bookstore, but it's self-help. It might be a fascination with pop psychology and the belief that the Scriptures aren't completely sufficient to address various stations in life. Problems we encounter, emotions we struggle with, and hang-ups we have. We think that surely our deepest hurts and our deepest longings are more complicated and more serious than anything the Bible could possibly address. We see it in the obsession that people have with Dear Abby columns in newspapers and daily talk shows and how-to editorials and magazines. And this is when people in the church, began to refer to the Bible as simply a guidebook 
or an instruction manual or a love letter, instead of seeing that it is the revealed wisdom of God that tells of the work of God throughout redemptive history to reconcile all things back to Himself through the sufficient death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, the very wisdom of God becomes a means of getting myself right, to make me feel better, to give me rules to follow, to point others to their sins, and on and on and on, instead of seeing the Word of God as it truly is. The wisdom of God, which is the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God unto salvation. It's rampant in the church, in large part because I think the Scriptures, I think the demands of Jesus are far more radical than most of us are willing to admit. And so we simply attach ourselves to the world's way of doing things, the world's way of thinking, and we go with that. And there's some things that we do better than others, But in the end, many times we are comfortable with saying that we're Christians while we pursue the wisdom of the world. Let me give you a good example of this in the way that many, I would say most, young people think about dating relationships and pursuing a mate in life. The way I see most Christian young people pursuing relationships is absolutely contrary to anything you will find in the Scriptures. There's this idea that there's this one special person out there that everyone is supposed to marry and the only way you can find that person is to try out a bunch of different ones to see which one fits the best. So they get their hearts set on a person. They pour everything into that relationship. They spend all their time together. They spend a lot of their money on one another and eventually they get more physical. They get touchy. But then eventually something happens and and they break up and it doesn't work out anymore. And so there's heartbreak. There's sinful hatred for one another. Their friends take sides. Both parties begin to grow bitter about the opposite sex. But then at some point, the next person comes along. And then they go through the cycle again and again and again. The whole thing is silly. It's completely contrary to the Scriptures. And people often look at me funny when I beat this drum, but I want to tell you, I wish someone would have made this clear to me. Because how we pursue relationships has become so worldly and so much a part of our culture that the way of Scripture seems like foolishness. It seems like outdated and unrealistic expectations. So instead of entering relationships with the intention of pursuing a mate for marriage, we say we're in it for a good time and whatever happens, happens. Instead of evaluating whether or not a person shares the same biblical convictions, is someone I can be equally yoked with, And if they meet the biblical description of a true man or woman of God, we are more concerned with what they look like and what kind of career they have 
or how they make us feel. Instead of asking, how can I honor this girl the most and pursue her in a noble manner? Many guys who claim the name of Christ ask instead, how far can I go with this girl before it's considered sin? And all this carries over into marriage. These selfish, worldly pursuits carry over into how we treat our spouse, how we raise our children, how we impart wisdom to a new generation. You see, this is just one example of the wisdom of the world at work within the church. Running completely contrary to the wisdom of God. So we have a lot more in common with the Corinthians than most of us care to admit. And so Paul is exhorting them and is very well exhorting us to flee the wisdom of this world, the wisdom of man, to hold fast to the wisdom of God. Now before I go too far, I want to make a note of something so you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Throughout history... Men and women have created and have done some pretty remarkable things. Scientifically, technologically, medically, they have done some amazing things that have been to our benefit. So when we say we reject human wisdom, we're not saying that we reject the application of any human human wisdom to anything at all. What Paul is talking about and what we should be concerned with is the rejection of human philosophy the reasoning that seeks to answer ultimate questions. Look, there's, there's certain things that I cannot do and that I don't have a direct biblical directive to do even though I'm a Christian. For instance, I spend most of my time reading and journaling and writing and talking to people. So what in the world do I know about cars? So when my car needs to be worked on, First of all, I don't know it needs to be worked on until the brakes start sounding like mine have, if you've heard it recently. And my dashboard lights up like a Christmas tree. And there's this clanking sound under the hood that sounds like it's going to blow up. That's when I know I probably need to go see someone. So I go to the mechanic, I swallow hard, I drop a thousand bucks, and I depend on human wisdom. Man's wisdom to fix my car. And I'm not so concerned about whether the guy who's working on my car is a Christian or not. I'm concerned with whether or not he's a good mechanic. And that's okay, that's great. If we simply set up our own community and our own way of living life completely separated from those who live by the wisdom of man, we'll be completely useless in terms of advancing the kingdom. But then when the world gets into the area of trying to define and understand ultimate issues like where man came from and where he's going and what his purpose is, when the world attempts to define who God is, what He is doing, how involved He is in creation, when the world tries to define peace and joy and happiness, that's philosophy. That's the study of wisdom. So there's a difference. 
In some areas, the world is, is wiser than Christians. Jesus said in Luke 16, 8, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. In other words, if, if Christians would apply themselves to the gaining of godliness in the way that the worldly man applies himself to the gaining of wealth, it'd be a whole different church. They do some things with a lot more focus and a lot more effort. And if we applied our souls and our efforts, like many in the world applied their wallets, it's hard to say what God might do. So Paul is not completely rejecting all men that the man of this world has. He's simply staying, saying that when human wisdom is applied toward ultimate truth, toward things that deal with God and sin and man's destiny and salvation and transformation and sexuality and how we spend our money and morality and ethics in these areas and many others, man's philosophy is completely bankrupt and completely contrary to God's wisdom. Verse 6, again, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. It's interesting that Paul mentions the rulers of this age. He appears to be warning us that worldly wisdom, the wisdom of man simply does not just come from ivory towers of Hollywood and Washington, D.C. and major news networks and universities. But, brothers and sisters, worldly wisdom is everywhere. And we have to guard ourselves against it, even in our very own minds. And this is vital because we can have no saving faith that rests on the wisdom of men. Because the wisdom of men considers salvation through a crucified Christ to be foolishness. And the reason it does is because on the one hand, the death of Christ is a severe indictment of our hopeless, sinful condition. We are utterly insufficient. And on the other hand, the wisdom of the world is devoted 100% to achieving and maintaining its own self-sufficiency and grounds for boasting. We hit on this last week when I addressed what the gospel is, what it does and how it cuts the legs out from underneath any grounds that we have for boasting in and of ourselves. And I want to address five questions that relate to this passage. I think that if we ask questions of the text, Paul gives us some pretty clear answers. So I'll tell you what the questions are and then we'll go by them one by one. The first is, what is God's secret and hidden wisdom? Second, who cannot understand and receive this wisdom? Third, who can understand and receive this wisdom? Fourth, how is God's wisdom imparted or given to those who will understand? And lastly, we will ask, why does it matter whether or not one knows the wisdom of God? And so the first question, what is God's secret and hidden wisdom? Look at verse 7. 
But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And verse 9, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So in part, I think as we consider this question, we can quickly realize that it will take an eternity to answer. We will forever be discovering the wisdom of God as He grants us more and more understanding. We will never exhaust God's wisdom. No matter how much we discover in this life and in the life to come. But in verse 7 here, we see something gloriously encouraging and hope-filled. God decreed His wisdom before the ages. Why? He says, for our glory. So whatever else the wisdom of God is, it is most assuredly this. The exercise of the infinite, eternal mind of God devising for His people a glorious future. Christ was meek. Christ was lowly. Jesus was despised and He was wounded for our transgressions. But He was the Lord of glory. So it is with those who love Him. They may be despised and rejected and suffer now, but they are children of glory. As Paul said in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is revealed to us. Look at verse 9. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. God decreed a secret and hidden wisdom. Verse 7 and verse 9, He has prepared it for those who love Him. So the secret wisdom of God that Paul is speaking is the proclamation of what we looked at last week, namely verse 2, Christ and Him crucified. So the secret and hidden wisdom of God is that which was decreed before the ages, prepared for those who love Him, and is announced in the proclamation of Christ and Him crucified. Our second question, who cannot understand and receive this wisdom? Notice that twice in the text, Paul mentions the rulers of this age, verse 6 and verse 8. Why them specifically? One reason Paul is narrowing in on the rulers of this age is to show the wisdom that can get one into power will not likewise get you to God. The wisdom of man that launches an individual into a position of power and prestige is not the wisdom of God. Verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1 hint at this fact that many of the Corinthians were probably obsessed with power. They were obsessed with this power that rulers have. Verse 26, Paul says, Not many of you were powerful. 
Verse 27, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the powerful. In chapter 4, verse 8, we see Paul writing, Already you are filled. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings, rulers. In other words, you are claiming to experience the things in this world, in this age that God has prepared for the ages to come. So Paul is saying somewhat sarcastically, you have already attained that which we are holding out for. He knew he had not attained the status of a ruler. And he implies that he wishes that the Corinthians did not either. No matter how powerful or wise they thought they were. This power that they thought they had, this achievement through the wisdom of man was worthless in obtaining a relationship with God, no matter how important it seemed to the world. And another, maybe less obvious reason Paul seems to be narrowing in on the rulers of this age, not understanding and receiving the wisdom is to give a vivid example of the fact that you can measure a person's true wisdom by whether or not they recognize Jesus as the Lord of glory. Look at verse 8. If they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they knew the wisdom of God, they would not have crucified Jesus. And so by this we can discern that it is very clear as to whether or not one is consumed with the wisdom of man or the wisdom of the world based on whether or not he acknowledges the crucified Christ to be not a criminal, but the Lord of glory. So who cannot understand and receive the wisdom of God? Those who are so captivated by the wisdom of the world that leads to power and influence and acclaim that they simply fail to recognize Jesus as the Lord of glory. They cannot receive God's wisdom. And look, it's not that one has power or has a position of power that destroys an opportunity for God's wisdom to be imparted. It is a hunger for power that blinds a person and drives a person to see nothing of the glory of the crucified Christ, the suffering Messiah. It's not simply that one has influence or acclaim. It's whether or not he gropes for that and will give anything for it in order that he would be known and made much of himself. And that cuts him off from the wisdom of God. And claims that he is wise in his own eyes. And that the claims of Jesus are foolishness. So it is possible to be so enamored with wisdom that leads to power and acclaim in the world. That all access to the wisdom of God in Christ Jesus is completely cut off. This is what Jesus was referring to in Matthew eleven twenty five. He said, I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. No one who longs and gropes for power and acclaim to the extent of not seeing Jesus for who he truly is will ever receive the wisdom of God. 
Third, we ask who can understand and receive that wisdom. There are certain individuals who will receive and understand the wisdom of God in a way that will be welcomed and affirmed, not rejected as foolishness. Look back again at verse 6. Among the mature, we do impart wisdom. We still need to ask Paul here, who are, who are they? Who are the mature? And verse 13 will help us with this. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So we speak a wisdom among the mature. That is, we interpret a wisdom revealed by the Spirit to spiritual people. It is these individuals who can grasp the wisdom that is given and received with joy. Now, when Paul is speaking of a mature or spiritual person, he's not talking about those who are supremely religious. He's not even talking about someone who is constantly reading their Bible or constantly praying for everyone. He's talking about a person who is walking in the Spirit, who is filled and who is carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. So we ask, how, how will we know that? How do we know when a person, if a person, is being carried along by the Spirit? We know from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through chapter 6, verse 1, that those who walk by the Spirit will bear the fruits of the Spirit. And in Galatians 6, 1, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So here he ties the fruits of the Spirit. Joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He ties those fruits to those who are spiritual. And it's helpful to see the opposite of well. Namely, those who do not walk by the Spirit are not producing the fruits of the Spirit, but are doing the works of the flesh. Galatians 5, 19 and following. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So the opposite of a spiritual man is a carnal, natural, fleshy man who is doing the very things his nature is bent toward, namely the works of the flesh. So the evidence is in the difference. One is doing the works of the Spirit, another is doing the works of the flesh. And look, we will often consider a person, and that person may very well be ourselves, but we consider who a person is, what a person is, and we say things like this. I think, I think they're probably a Christian. They might be, but, but I'm, not, I'm not sure. But do we not have objective evidence here to see if one has received the wisdom of God? has received with joy the message that Paul proclaimed as Christ and Him crucified? I think so. I think Paul gives us a very clear picture of what the spiritual person looks like. 
A person who is being transformed by the Spirit of God is one that exhibits the fruits of the Spirit and not, is not enslaved to his old self-sufficient nature. Yes, all of us are in different places in our sanctification. God has each of us in different places as far as what the truth of God has taken root in us and has grown into maturity in our lives. But there is absolutely a distinguishing objective factor in the life of a true believer. There is objective evidence to look at in the life of a person to see whether or not they have understood and received the wisdom of God. Namely, whether or not they are walking by the Spirit or by the flesh, which is made evident in their fruit. So what is the fruit of your life? Does it exhibit the wisdom of God? Does it display the truth of Christ and Him crucified through the fruits of the Spirit? So grasping the wisdom of God. And when we talk about wisdom, it's easy to start thinking down the road of knowing or knowledge But grasping the wisdom of God is not simply achieving a certain level of knowledge. A lot of people know a lot about God, but will never truly know God. But true wisdom comes not through knowledge or education or experience. Whether or not one receives the wisdom of God has to do with the heart, not the head. It is holiness. It is a longing to be sanctified. It is a walking in the Spirit that makes one receptive and open to the wisdom of God. You cannot separate your holiness from wisdom. God has revealed His wisdom, but has chosen to do so through the mature spiritual men and women. We're not talking about some super elite religious group here but everyone who is walking in the Spirit, which is evidenced by their walking in the Spirit and bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Have you ever noticed that there are certain people that you always feel like or are thinking, they know a lot. They seem to, they seem to study a lot. They are much more observant of the Scriptures and have a lot more insight, it seems, than the average Christian. I think we probably all know people we think like that about. But look, these are not some spiritual elite persons. They are simply more concerned with holiness in their life. And as a result, God is granting them wisdom. Yeah, it's it's not it's not that they read more or have better study materials than you do. But it's that they're reading and studying and taking in God's word with a desire to be more holy not a desire to be puffed up with knowledge. You see the difference? James confirms this in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. He describes the wisdom of God in moral terms. He says this, Who is wise in understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. 
But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So the people who can receive and embrace and understand the wisdom of God are those in whom the Holy Spirit is at work, overcoming the works of the flesh. These are the mature, the spiritual, the ones who see and embrace and love Christ and Him crucified in all His sufferings, in all of His meekness as the Lord of glory. One must receive the Spirit in order to discern the things of the Spirit. So then we cannot expect a non-believer to understand, like, or want the gospel. Nor can we expect them to live lives consistent with the scriptures. So it's silly to say things like, well, I know they're a Christian, but they sure don't act like it. No, they don't act like it because you're putting expectations in them that have never taken root by the work of the Spirit, imparting true wisdom which is embraced and loved and lived out in the fruits of the Spirit. If one consistently walks in a way that we look at and say, they're not acting like a Christian. There's a reason for it. They're not. And while we don't want to walk around making quick judgments on the hearts of everyone, it is far more loving and helpful to see it for what it is and not attempt to cover up the reality of their unbelief and rejection of the true gospel by assuming that a spiritual reality will not be revealed in an objective, fruit-bearing way. So we must ask, am I walking in the fruits of the Spirit? And if so, has God granted me wisdom from above? Am I seeking wisdom from above. Fourth, how is God's wisdom imparted? How does God give wisdom to those who understand? It is clear from the context that the natural man would never discover the true wisdom of God on his own, right? Look at verse 9. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. God's wisdom is unknown to man on his own. It is undiscoverable by man on his own. It would have never occurred to any of us what is God's wisdom had God not done a sovereign and decisive work to open our eyes and to open our ears to grant us the ability to see and to hear and to think and to discover and to embrace with joy the gospel of Christ. But verse 7 calls it a secret and a hidden wisdom. So the only way for a mere man to know it is for God to reveal it. The wisdom of God is discovered by men, not by intellect and not by knowledge, but by revelation. This is the act whereby God makes known to man that which was previously concealed or hidden. So how is it done? Paul tells us in verses 10 through 13. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. 
For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. (coughs) So Paul puts an analogy to use here. Among men, a person's thoughts and concerns are only known in the spirit of that person. And the only way you know of anything in my spirit is if I reveal that to you. You can only know my thoughts, you can only know my heart if I reveal it to you, if I tell you of it. And so it is with God. No one knows His mind except His own spirit. But God has willed to impart His wisdom By His Spirit. Verse 12, we have received the Spirit who is from God. But what does that look like for us? How do we today gain the wisdom by the Spirit? Notice in verse 12, he writes, we have received. Who is we? I believe in this context, he's writing about the apostles. We is the apostles, those who God inspired and who taught the rest of the believers with authority and eventually wrote the books that we have in the New Testament of the Bible. We can see that this is the case because of how verse 12 transitions into verse 13. And he says, and we impart. So you see, there's an imparting, there's a giving of that wisdom. It is being transferred from one party to the next. So the flow seems to go like this. God gave the apostles the Holy Spirit to reveal the things no one ever imagined. And in turn, as God's authoritative and inspired spokesmen, they speak in words taught by the Spirit and are, are, and are interpreting spiritual things to spiritual people. So the way we receive the wisdom of God then is that we receive that which was being taught to us through the apostles by the Spirit, namely through the Word of God. God has revealed Himself in His Word through His messengers, and as a result, we have the means of gaining the wisdom of God by understanding His Word, by eating of His Word, by taking in His Word. But only those who are prepared to receive the word with the same spirit that inspired it and the same spirit that worked through the apostles will receive the wisdom of God. And so the wisdom of God is imparted to us today through his word. And we receive it when we have received the Holy Spirit. And so lastly, why does it matter? Why does it matter whether or not one knows the wisdom of God. It is vitally, eternally crucial to know the wisdom of God because of what we see at the end of verse 6. The rulers of this age who did not receive the wisdom of God, those who did not receive Him with joy, 
They did not receive the proclamation of Christ in Him crucified and see Him as the Lord of glory and the hope of glory are coming to nothing. They are doomed to pass away. For these God has not decreed from the beginning. He has not prepared for the, from the beginning a glorious future. Rather, it is for those who love Him, for those who cherish Christ preciously in His suffering, in His glory, in His humility, in His love, in His grace as the Lord of glory. It is these who have ears to hear. It is these who have eyes to see the wisdom of God and who will be glorified in the age to come. This is vitally important. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us lay aside any desires for prestige. Let us lay aside any hunger for power. Let us lay aside longings for recognition. And let us flee from jealousy and strife and a lack of self-control. And instead, let us embrace a life of meekness and humility and joy in Christ that opens us up to the wisdom of Almighty God. May God grant us all eyes to see and ears to hear that we may be wise in the secret and hidden wisdom of God. Finding our greatest joy in Christ and Him crucified. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You have not held Your wisdom in ivory towers, but that You have revealed it to us that You have given us Your Word, that at any moment we can open Your Word and we can look to see Your wisdom. Father, for those of us whom You have given eyes to see and ears to hear, Father, we rejoice in knowing that Your wisdom is fully available to us in Your Word to the extent that You would have us know. And Father, we rejoice in knowing that forever and ever and ever we will always seek to gain more knowledge of Your great wisdom. Father, we thank You for revealing to us that which was once concealed, that which was secret and hidden, for making known to us the glory of the gospel of Jesus, of making known to us the reality of Christ and Him crucified. And so, Father, we pray that You would give us a greater longing for Your wisdom, that we would Flee the wisdom of this world. And that as the world looks on us and we pursue the wisdom of God and they call what we strive to do foolishness, that we would rejoice in knowing that this foolishness to them is great wisdom to you. How much greater it is to walk in your wisdom and be called fools than to walk in the wisdom of the world and for you to say to us, I never knew you. Help us, O oh God, 
to be lovers of truth, to have a great desire for wisdom, and to impart the true wisdom of Christ and Him crucified forevermore. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.